Today on the Entrepreneurship at DU podcast. I wanted to be like CEO of Disney. I loved entertainment and was thinking about doing acting and comedy and decided to go the safer route of the corporate career. I definitely had ambitions. I, I always had high goals. A longtime Disney executive shares the journey of leaving his corporate job and launching his own media company. We kept buying all these smaller companies. And I thought, well, I want to be on the end of that. And I was always restless in the sense that I just, I knew I wouldn't be satisfied just sitting in the same job, same office, same company. John Neerman, the former president of Disney Asia, left the corporate world in pursuit of entrepreneurship. In 2016, he co-founded Loop TV, a streaming service that provides free content for businesses. The company recently went public on the New York Stock Exchange. Today, we're chatting with John Neerman, the CEO and co-founder of Loop TV. I'm Kevin Douglas, and this is the Entrepreneurship at DU podcast. Welcome to the Entrepreneurship at DU podcast. Today, we're chatting with John Neerman, an entrepreneur with several years of experience in the entertainment and media industries. John Neerman graduated from the University of Denver with a BSBA in finance and marketing. He went on to accept a job at Disney as a sales and marketing rep. From there, he worked his way up the corporate ladder, eventually becoming the managing director and president of Walt Disney Asia. After Disney, he went on to work for Electronic Arts as president of their Asia division. Since then, John has left his corporate positions in pursuit of entrepreneurship. In 2010, he founded Far West Entertainment, an Asia-based media company that received global distribution. After serving as CEO and executive producer for five years, he moved on to his next venture, Loop TV, a media company that provides free music and video content to businesses while generating revenue for Loop by displaying advertisements alongside their curated content. John, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Hey, Kevin. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to hear about your journey within Disney, coming right out of DU, how you accepted that position, and what that journey was like moving up the corporate ladder. You know, it's funny. It was all about networking. I came from Southern Illinois to go to the University of Denver, so I kind of got out of this small cow town and uh, moved to the big city and had a great, great experience there. I joined a fraternity, Kappa Sigma. That existed at the time and um, had some some really good friends there. One of those friends who tried to be my pledge son, his dad was a head of Madison Square Garden Network. And I had always wanted to work at Disney. My family went to vacations, Walt Disney World, that typical stuff that you hear. So he happened to know the president at Disney World. And basically, he arranged to have an interview set up for me at Disneyland in Anaheim. So I remember driving... 16 hours with a couple of friends to go out to Anaheim, have that interview before graduation. And fortunately, things worked out well. So I could graduate with my Mickey Mouse ears. When you started out, did you have ambitions to be a corporate executive or did you just find yourself falling into these opportunities within the company? Oh, no, I wanted to be like CEO of Disney. So I I definitely had ambitions. I, I always had high goals and uh, Walt Disney was kind of one of those guys that I read a lot about growing up. 
and I was just kind of mesmerized with what he did with theme parks. And so I, I loved entertainment. I had always been into entertainment and was thinking about doing acting and comedy and decided to go the safer route of the corporate career, at least for me. That's what my mom said, become an accountant. Like, thank God I didn't do that. But anyway, nothing against accountants, but um, I, it just wasn't for me. So I definitely wanted to, to set my sights on a fun career, and I thought entertainment. But yeah, I was very ambitious and always kind of looking at that next level of, of how I could level up. When you eventually found yourself as uh, president of Walt Disney Asia, can you talk about what that process was like transitioning into a different culture? Had you been living, had you visited before Asia or Shanghai? No, I had never gone to Asia. I, I really, um, I went to Europe once right out of high school. I was in the American Musical Ambassadors and we had like a three week band tour and that mm -hmm. was super cool. So I kind of got a little bit of an international bug and at Disney, I, you know, like I said, I kind of went from sales rep then I went to manager of, of, and I went to director of national accounts and manager of the PR thing. Let me, I'll, I'll tell you a side story on that. That was super cool because it was in the nineties and they had reestablished the Mickey Mouse Club. And at the Mickey Mouse Club at that time, I ran publicity. And who were Little Mouseketeers? There was 12-year-old Ryan Gosling, 12-year-old uh, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Carrie Russell. You talk about this amazing group of talent that Disney kind of, they canceled the show. Can you believe that? That's, it's absolutely nuts. And then they all went on to be obviously huge. But uh, I was Mr. Nearman to them, you know, and I, I was like late twenties, like, come on, dude, I'm not that old. But anyway, that, that was kind of my one year of PR. And then I went back into sales and marketing and eventually ran marketing for feature animation. And from there, there was an opportunity to go to Asia and uh, run television first. So I had a chance to go over there and, and I remember going home to my wife and I talked to the head of HR at the time at Disney. He's like, well, we don't have anything in London, which is where most people want to go. Um, but we've got this thing in Hong Kong, but I don't know, do you really want to go to Hong Kong? So <laughs> I went home, I talked to her and she said, yeah, we want to go to Hong Kong. So I was on a plane and I think three months later we moved. And anyway, best experience of my life worked out really well. Do you have any uh, stories or uh, experience working with Bob Iger? I think most people recognize him as the yeah, longtime CEO of Disney in the modern age. Yeah, I do. I was fortunate enough to to work fairly closely with Bob. Um, my boss at the time, well, I had several mentors at Disney. You know, first there was a guy named Charlie Nooney when I started out, and Charlie was the type of guy that was just fun, yeah, and and encouraging, and you know, hard, but basically was very supportive. And I had a very similar guy when I first went out to Disney uh, Asia called Ed Borgerding, who had been with the company for twenty four years, and 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 really empowered me to succeed as he did his team. And then I moved uh, to international and, and was reporting to a guy named Michael Johnson who ran Disney Home Video. And Michael reported to Bob. And, Bob, and uh, Michael Eisner was also there at the time. And I got very, very lucky with my timing because about six months after I moved to Hong Kong, they announced a theme park was going to be built in Hong Kong. So Disney really doubled down in Asia. So 
I don't think I would have become president of a division in the U.S. as quickly as I did in Asia, simply as good luck and timing. And so Bob really spearheaded that international growth for Disney. He was president of Disney at the time. Uh, and he very he had some very, very good just kind of looking around the corners of vision of what we could do more of internationally, become that true global company. So I was, I was fortunate enough to be, you know, because of running Asia, I was fortunate enough to be in that smaller circle of having these type of meetings. Uh, he's a fantastic leader. You know, if anyone hasn't read his book, they should. I, I think it's it's a fantastic and well-written um, and he was, he was very kind to me. He was very supportive of me. I will tell you one story, though. I almost blew it. We were out to dinner in Hong Kong, and Bob, uh, Bob would go over there. He'd get his suits tailored, and he'd bring them back. And he was wearing this nice suit with this nice tie and a white shirt. And it was Michael, Bob, and I. And I was so excited. I was telling some story, and boom, threw my arms up and right across the glass of red wine that went right into Bob's new suit. So I oh, think no. he never forgot me as a result of that, which was always good. Um, I think he might even remember it to this day. So the, the great thing about Bob is what I'll always remember is he was just very, very supportive in terms of, you know, letting people do their work. That's certainly one way to make a, a first impression of one it's of the most lasting one, man. I don't know yeah. if it was a good, it was shortly before I left Disney. So I don't know <laughs> if I was just afraid I maybe not be able to advance anymore after that or what, but uh, certainly it was a fun memory. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear a little more also about the, the development of the Shanghai Disneyland park. How much involvement did you have with that? Yeah, it's her latest park. It's, it's funny because Disney was structured into really two groups. It was theme park and then everything else. And there were about 77 divisions at the time. And I think we had maybe 30 represented in Asia. So, I mean, you didn't have everything out there um, like sports and things like that, that Disney was into. So, you know, but we certainly had a majority of it like TV, movies, et cetera. So I dealt with everything but theme parks. But because I was on the corporate side, I was in those initial Shanghai meetings. I remember we went we went to Shanghai and there were four of us um, from Disney and there were 27 uh, on the Chinese side. And it was rather intimidating. It was it was it was like a it was almost like a storyline that you see from a movie where you got these row of suits across from you and all these cameras and it was it was wild, but that was the first discussion that we sat down about kind of a serious discussion on how we move beyond Hong Kong and go into the mainland on Shanghai. What do you think you learned from all that time with Disney that prepared you to then be an entrepreneur? To be myself, um, you know, it, it was it's one of those things where I was never the smartest guy in the room. Uh, but I know, I think I brought something to the table that, um, a lot of people appreciated, you know, I always try to approach work in a collaborative way, uh, saying, you know, I like to be lighthearted. I've always been lighthearted. I talked about comedy earlier. I was always wanted to be a talk show host, which we'll get to because it eventually happened. But, um, I think it was just a matter of, of keeping people happy, keeping people excited and really, 
having an entrepreneurial mindset within a big company, if that makes sense. Disney was very supportive, and I also was fortunate enough to have bosses that let me do their thing or my thing. Now, I did get some advice from a couple of bosses along the way that I don't think was great advice, and it was sometimes you're too nice, is what they literally said. So it's like, I'm like, well, I don't know if I'm wired that way, and I don't know if I want to manage that way. And I've had a boss like that who was horrible, and I didn't enjoy that. So there was one patch at Disney uh, that I did have that for a couple of years, and it just was unpleasant. So no, I'm, I, I didn't do that. I stuck with who I was, and I think that was, you know, that was really important to be yourself. Why did you ultimately decide to leave your corporate work and become a founder? You know, it's funny. There were a couple of reasons. So I left Disney to go to Electronic Arts because at that time, this was right about the time Michael Eisner was was getting forced out as CEO, and it wasn't clear if Bob was going to become CEO. And Roy Disney was leading the charge to really get rid of both of them. And it was a tumultuous time, and the stock fell from, I think, I don't know, it was 40-something at the time down to the teens. Um, I had been approached by Electronic Arts, and, and I had said no because I didn't want to leave Disney. I never imagined leaving Disney. And when all that was going on, I thought, well, maybe I should talk about this. I saw an article about Electronic Arts that said, is this the next Disney? And that was 2003. And I thought, well, okay, maybe that's a sign. So I took that leap and I went with that company. I'm glad I did because that was some great experience that I needed to really kind of run a P&L to help grow a business, to launch new product lines like mobile gaming and, and online gaming, um, and really diversify and solidify my business experience across Asia. So after I did that with Electronic Arts, uh, it was kind of a similar time. You know, they were going through, they brought in a new CEO. Uh, I had like six bosses in seven years. Stock had fallen down. And I was, there were a couple of things. One, the stock was going down. I'm like, screw this. I'm going to go out and build my own company. And two was we kept buying all these smaller companies. And I thought, well, I want to be on the end of that. <laughs> How does that happen? Mm-hmm. How do you create something that one of these big companies actually wants to buy? And I was always restless in the sense that I just, I knew I wouldn't be satisfied just sitting in the same job, same office, same company, uh, since you only go around this globe once. So I wanted that type of experience to grow my own company. And I had always discussed with my wife, idea after idea after idea, one of those type of guys, right? I probably had like 30, 40 ideas. So I finally just decided, let's see if we could make something work. I think I and many people who consider themselves entrepreneurs or innovators or whatever word they use, that that feeling of having so many ideas and just narrowing it down to one to pick and focus on. It's a very relatable uh, feeling. Yeah, and I, th- I think at some point you just have to, so many people, everybody has ideas. I mean, you, you, some people that aren't necessarily that you would call quote-unquote ambitious, uh, they're happy just to do what they're doing, and that's awesome, but they have ideas, you know? So it really is a question of how often do you verbalize them. I, unfortunately, wasn't one of those guys like, hey, this would be cool. So it was just eventually like I felt like I had to make good on it. And I felt after 22 years of corporate and I had achieved um, some good success there that I had the ability to go out and give it a shot. And by this time I was 45. So I am not what you would call a young entrepreneur. It was, it was, 
you know, it was, and it was way, way, way harder than I anticipated. Well, let's talk about that first idea or the, the idea you pursued after electronic arts and that was far West entertainment. And, um, how did that come about? What became of that company? And let's definitely also talk about you finally got to be the, the talk show host you, you mentioned before. Well, that was it. So I, when we brought celebrities out um, to promote movies, etc., they didn't have a late night talk show like we're so used to in the U.S. And back in that day, it was it was Jay Leno and David Letterman. You know, and I grew up with Johnny Carson, you know, one of the the big Tonight Show guys, and he inspired so many people. So it was one of those things like, well, that would be fun to try. So I, on the side, while I was running Electronic Arts, shot a pilot for a late night talk show using essentially the Letterman format. And, um, you know, we it, I, I paid for it. It wasn't that expensive. And I didn't want anyone to know about it. I mean, my wife knew about it and she was very supportive and I knew a couple of people in the TV industry and I, I said, can we get a soundstage and something to shoot this and scripted it, invited a few guests. Um, there was a song called uh, James Blunt. He was a singer was, and the song was You're Beautiful at the time. So we were we able to get him when he was in town. And I just shot the pilot and we showed it to people at NBC and Fox out there. And they said, you know what? It actually isn't that bad. So for a year while I was doing electronic arts, I was doing a weekend talk show. Uh, so I tested and kicked the waters a little bit and just decided to do that. And that's what I built Far West off of. I think Far West, the idea was was kind of like a Simon Cowell model, you know, where he was doing all these great things with talent search and finding people and hosting and I, I wanted to do that for Asia. That was kind of the original concept of Far West. So following that venture and then moving into what you're doing now with Loop TV, um, where did the idea come from and how did you end up on the current business model? Were there other iterations before this one? Well, it's funny because it really came out of a failure of Far West. Uh, the, I had did the talk show for a few years and decided that we were going to now launch a talent search show. Um, and I couldn't really do both because we really didn't have funding for both. I mean, for, that was a big issue for us is I, I had never raised money before. So I was a bit naive to the process. I kind of thought, oh, here's this former president of these companies. Uh, people will be lining up to invest. And we had like 50 meetings and nobody lined up. So it's just that type of an awakening. And I think it was a bit humbling, obviously, as well, that this is way harder than you imagine that you're going to be doing this. But by this stage, I was committed and determined that we we kind of had to make it work. So we, we tried to launch a pan-Asian girl group. So I was thinking like an Asian Spice Girls because there had never been a, an Asian singer popular in the U.S. at the time. This was about 2010. And, you know, so we went out and we found talent from China, Korea, Japan, India, the Philippines, put them together into super group. And we brought them to the U.S. And they had, you know, their first single was with Snoop Dogg. And they opened for Justin Bieber and Quincy Jones produced them. And you would think, okay, that sounds successful. And we really never made any money. It was very, very hard um, to try to get a fan base 
to support a group like that. And I kind of then felt like I was in the, on this treadmill of, wow, we've got so much invested in this. We've got to make it work. And at one stage, we were shooting a music video um, and a guy that I met that he owned in Burbank, California. And I didn't realize at the time that 40% of YouTube views were music videos, how big that business was. And he is the guy, a guy named Sean Driscoll, that said, you know, we should do a business around music videos because that's really a big thing. And because this kind of music performance side was just flailing a little bit for us, we started focusing on that music video business, which eventually turned into Loop. I think it's very heartening for me and I'm sure anyone listening to hear about just how a failure can lead to the success. And no matter what stage you are in your career, the fact you had so much corporate experience and these connections, but you still tried something that didn't work in its first you know, method and then eventually became something that did work. I think a lot of especially student entrepreneurs that we talk to and I work with here at DU, they try something that doesn't work and it's it's easy to feel intimidated or frustrated by that. But knowing no matter what stage you are, that can happen, I think is really great to hear. Yeah, good. You know, it, it is. It really is about kind of taking that that learning and, again, the humility aspect of it, of, of you just, it's true about persistence. If you are not persistent, if you're not tenacious, this is a tough road to hoe, right? You, you, you do have to have the thick skin, um, you do have to be able to get knocked down. Everything that you've already learned about and read about, I can't tell you anything different other than it's true. <laughs> it just, it is. I mean, it really is. I, I think everybody always asks about the combination of luck versus idea versus persistence. And it, it's always the same. It's always a combination. But it, truly, the persistence aspect is a majority of it. I mean, you, you have to believe, you have to have the fortitude and you just got to keep going and don't get demoralized as hard as it is. I still get demoralized. You know, I still like we, we have might have a deal that's happening and you work on this deal for six months and it falls through. And I know that deal will lead to something big um, and it doesn't happen. It's tough, but there's another deal. You know, and, and the same thing for the, you entrepreneurs. If you want to do this, you just do it. You grind through it. And you just stick with it. Let's talk about the very beginning of Loop. As you decided this music video model would be the one to pursue, how did you, from there, assemble the team that brought that to life? And that's both the executive level people you brought on to lead the charge, but also as you started hiring out, what company culture were you trying to develop? And what were you looking for in the, the people you were hiring to bring onto the team? Nobody likes working with people they don't like. So how do you create a supportive, fun environment? Um, you're going to choose to come into this small company that's not making any money right now. We have no idea if this is going to work, but we want to have a good time trying to make it happen. And you have to be passionate about it, willing to do that. So when I started developing this idea with Sean, um, the first person I went to was a guy named Liam McCallum who had built up our tech platform for electronic arts. And I just explained the idea and said, I, I mean, I could conceptualize, but I can't do it. How do you actually build this? 
And Liam is just one of these brilliant product guys. You know, he was younger. I think he was like 15 young, years younger than me. You know, so he, he was uh, more in touch, so to speak, with that latest technology and, and you know, building the app and et cetera. So without Liam, we wouldn't have a business today. And then I think uh, there was another guy named Mark Vreeling who we met who owned a music video library that he had purchased from an old elevator music company called Muzak. And it turns out to be one of the world's largest music video libraries that exist beyond MTV and Vivo. That's really about it that Loop owns now. So Mark was willing to take his business, which was called Screenplay, and discuss some sort of merger that eventually were this, was a seeds for Loop. Um, then it just became about filling out the spots. I knew we needed somebody who understood monetization. I knew we needed more help on the growth side, the technical side. So it was it was about keeping a tight team. We're never one of those companies that's going to print up a T-shirt that says we have 500 employees. You know, we if you could do it with about 70 to 80, which is where we are now, um, I envisioned a company of maybe 100 or so. You know, that's that's a great way to do it. You just you want people that are empowered, that are having fun, that are feeling like they're contributing, that have a clear goal on what they need to do, that are allowed to express their creativity and ideas. You know, we always, always encourage that. And the best ideas come from people, you know, that you wouldn't expect it so often. So we're very fortunate that that I have that same core group of people that have worked with me from the beginning. You know, there were maybe three, four, five of us. And then today those people still exist and we've just built out around them by adding some great talent that, that we were lacking to be able to get us to the stage that we are now as a public company. So you're based in Los Angeles, but majority of your team is remote. Is that right? Yeah, we've been virtual pretty much the whole time. So you know, the, the pandemic was a coincidence for us just in terms of virtual. It, it didn't affect us. And we are virtual today. And uh, we think that that's talent attraction, you know, as a vehicle because a lot of, we found some great talent that are living in North Dakota or wherever you might not have a major corporation to pull from. So we're, uh, we're happy with that. And it works well. Working with people in different time zones who are spread out very far apart from each other, how do you still maintain the collaborative nature of this kind of work? And what challenges have you found arising from from the nature of that? Well, I think starting with the challenges, you, you do miss that kind of water to cooler conversation. You do miss the kind of looking in the door to each other, going to lunch, sitting down. When we do have those meetings and our core management team gets together, you know, often monthly, if not quarterly. So sometimes between one to three times a month, depending what's going on, um, we get a lot out of those three days, you know, because you really can go through a lot. But we also are very good. We do, you know, quarterly town halls with the full company. Uh, we do monthly management meetings, you know, at a set time. I'm not really big on one-on-one -on -one type of set schedule because I think people's schedule is, is so burdensome. And I think you overload it with meetings that you think you need to do. And a huge problem for companies is just over meeting. And spending so much time internally as opposed to outwardly facing. And I'm shocked about I know people that work at Amazon and, and some of these bigger companies. It, it seems like they spend 80% of their time on internal process. So for us, it's all about how are we connecting with our clients? How are we growing our distribution? 
and just making sure that we keep lines of communication open. Uh, we don't have any barriers. We're a small company. Anybody can talk to anybody. So it, we're, we're not stuck on hierarchy and, and people respect that. I mean, as a result, I think we have a fantastic team with so many people that are overqualified to work at a small company like Loop that they could easily have a bigger job somewhere else, but they really, really believe in what they're doing and enjoy it. They're flexible with their schedule. So we make it work that way. It's never been a problem for us where we feel like we're not collaborating. That's another common thread that a lot of the people I've interviewed on this podcast, the idea of trying to change what a hierarchy looks like within a company. I think it's very also exciting to hear with as many as 70 or 80 employees, which still small relatively, but compared to many of the entrepreneurs I've talked to, that's, that's very big. Um, the fact it's still very collaborative and the fact that people as individuals are still heard and valued. Uh, it's just great to hear. You can still maintain that even at the current, current scale. Yeah, it's important. I mean, I, I think that people think a lot of things of what you're supposed to do to be a company and just meetings can be a tremendous waste of time. <laughs> it's that in, I think you know what I'm trying to say is you're, you're just for the sake of meeting. You know, when when you could just pick up the phone or, or drop an email or whatever and just kind of spontaneously get something done. Now, having regular touch points is great, but don't overthink the structure and, and people have to feel free to talk to each other. It requires a lot of trust, but it does, I think, empower confidence. Yeah, that's part of the culture, too. You know, that's that's where it's our culture is, you know, when, when we did those, we, we get this best places to work type of awards, you know, and, and to me, that's mm -hmm. important. You know, I, I, it might sound kind of cheesy and weird to people, but uh, I like it when we have our little best places to work awards. You know, I like it when the team is saying positive things and feels good about what they're doing. And uh, our retention is very, very high. I mean, we've, we've got, you know, just a handful of people I say that would that have left or haven't worked out. So we've been very fortunate that way, but we found like-minded people. Our interview process is not ridiculous. It's not like we go through tests and quizzes and 12 people. It really is the first thing, like we're talking now, is this person going to be fun to work with? Are we going to enjoy this person? Are they a good person? You know, are they obnoxious? Do they seem like they're going to be a pain in the butt. Uh, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care your pedigree. If you just, if you're not going to be enjoyable to work with, then you're just not going to pass through the door. I want to circle back to, uh, you briefly touched on earlier loop being traded publicly in the New York stock exchange. And I'd love to hear what that process was like going from private to public. And was that the natural next progression for you for funding? And how did that all work out? So let me, let me give you the two-minute synopsis. Loop kind of started in theory, probably those first conversations, 2013, 14. Uh, we didn't incorporate till 16. Kind of took a little bit of time behind the scenes, raise a little bit of money, come together. And we did not use venture capital. That was an important thing for us. Uh, we felt that we had enough experience that we did not want to go the VC route. I had heard horrible things about VCs and tried to take control of your business, try to take a majority of the stock, and then just leaning on you every day if they didn't agree with your decisions. We wanted to have the flexibility to make our own decisions. 
And so we went out, we chose individuals, high net worth individuals. And through a series of networking, again, who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? Uh, we probably, again, had 100 meetings and ended up with two investors initially. And they put in a million dollars and then another million dollars and then another million dollars from their brother. And this was a family in Tennessee. So we built the company that way. We didn't go out and try to raise $50 million. And people would have laughed us out the door. Uh, so we knew we didn't want to do that. Um, so, but as a result, man, we probably almost failed half a dozen times, a dozen times. I mean, there were times when we had to stop paying people. Uh, we we couldn't afford it. You know, we couldn't complete deals. And, and I was spending my time constantly going out there. So between 2016 and 18, a lot of that was going on. And again, I just, I tell this story to go back to the whole thing about persistence and sticking with it. And it may not be easy, but you could get there. Uh, as we did more funding, one of the investors said, you should consider a path to going public. And I thought you had to be like a Facebook. I'm like, how could a tiny little company go public? And we initially did it in 2020 via a reverse merger with a company on the OTC. So it wasn't NASDAQ or it wasn't the NYSE. Um, and it was one of these over-the-counter trading things. But what I knew about that was it's not high volume. It's not high liquidity. We were willing to do it because it forced us to be audited. It forced us to be transparent. It forced us into a quarterly type of thinking that you had to get ready. I, I liken it like the minor leagues before you go up to the majors. And by the time last September came around, and we were talking to NASDAQ and the NYSE, our revenue had grown up six times um, from the previous year. So we were in a very good position, even though the market sucked last summer, it was a horrible market. Uh, we were in a good enough position to where we could go out and we chose the NYSE to do that. And that was, boy, I tell you, that took about a year. It took about a year just to get through that process. It's a very expensive process. So it's, you have... If you're going to go on the NYC, plan on spending a couple million dollars just for legal fees, for accounting, for all the stuff that you need to do. So you have to be in a position to do that. Um, and then you just you're playing the quarterly game. It's, it is from there. So but it's great for your shareholders. It's great for visibility. It's great for attracting new. And we're just at the beginning of this journey and we're super excited about what the road ahead is going to look like. As you look towards the road ahead, uh how do you see Loop continuing to grow and change in this industry? And how are you hoping to stay ahead of the competition and continue building value for, for your shareholders? So think about it this way. So if you think back to when it was pre-streaming, if you can imagine, uh, especially especially all the younger people today, there was a thing before streaming. It was just cable and satellite. So if you kind of think back to 2007-ish, when Netflix and Roku and, and all those guys were raising their heads, nobody knew of Hulu, really. Nobody, Pluto didn't exist. Um, you know, you, you don't, you, all the companies you take for granted today didn't exist. 100% of homes were cable satellite. By the time you get to 2015, you know, a third of the people are streaming. Flash forward to today, 2023, a majority of the people are streaming and have cut the cord. Where Loop is focused, it's bringing streaming TV to businesses. 
all of those big companies ignored that space. We are a small company, but we are one of the largest. There are two. There's another private company um, that are driving streaming for out of home. So if you kind of think about that transition in the consumer space, we want that to happen and we want to be that Roku for business. We want to be that Hulu for business. Uh, but we're more like Roku because we've got our own hardware. You connect it to the TV. We are connected TV for business. We're digital out of home. We're retail media. Those are kind of the buzzwords that people talk about today. So I envision Loop to be a company like that that was successful in the consumer space. We're going to become a market leader and continue to grow in the streaming for business space. And what's different about it, I should I should tell you, just so everybody understands, is the content itself. You you don't go to a bar. You're not going to go down, you know, to Spanky's or wherever and, and watch a movie or watch a TV show. You go to a bar to have fun. And we provide music videos. We're the largest music video provider for businesses in the U.S. We also have short-form entertainment like TikTok channel, uh, GoPro, action sports. Just think of eye candy stuff. All the main consumer streaming companies don't do that type of content. So that's where Loop stands out, and that's where we're different. And we're free, so the businesses don't have to pay for it. The comparison to the other streaming services makes it very clear. And also, it seems very logical that the out-of-home streaming would go that direction. So it'll be very exciting to continue following Loop and, and see where it goes in the future. Well, good. Thank you. I'm glad you understand it, because we're using that for pitches all the time. So I'm glad it's working. As you reflect on your time as an entrepreneur, what do you think are the biggest lessons and takeaways that you've learned? Um, it's, it's just kind of, first of all, decide if you're going to do it, be ready for that journey, you know, but go and don't let it scare you. Just do it. Be persistent. Surround yourself with support. You know, I, I had some people around me kind of, it's, it's so funny, man. I tell you all the stories. When you have a senior exec card from Disney or electronic arts, pretty easy to get a meeting. You all of a sudden put Far West on that card, 90% of those meetings go away. It's true. So have some thick skin. Be be willing to be humble. You know, so it, it's going to happen for you. So I, I think that that persistence and not caring what other people think about what you're doing and making sure you're around positive support is really, really important. So for me, that's what kept me going through all the, the dark times and the ups and downs. If you could go back in time, visit your 25-year-old self, what advice would you give him? You know, I believed you were working with Disney at that point, so. Yeah, that's good. It's uh, don't promise your wife that you're going to be a talk show host because then you got to make good <laughs> on that. Might be 20 years later, but be careful what you say. So I think don't, don't you know, it's funny. It's that Billy Joel theme. Don't go changing. So don't go changing. I mean, seriously, stay true to who you are. Uh, you're on the right path. You know that entertainment is important to you. No job is out of your reach. Uh, I, I like that being naive in the sense of, I can be CEO of that company. Why not? Somebody's going to become CEO of that company. If you're an artist, if you're a performer, somebody's going to earn that part. Somebody's going to do that. Why not you? 
You know, so I don't, again, don't let the naysayers, don't let, and have a rosy outlook on life. Seriously, you go through it once, have a good time while you're doing it. So that advice would be just keep doing what you're doing and don't go changing. It's great advice. I was actually listening to the stranger as I was walking over to the studio. So <laughs> well, there very, you go. Who knew, right? <laughs> very serendipitous. Um, we always wrap up our episodes with a couple rapid fire questions. So are you ready for your rapid fire questions? I'm ready, man. Fire away, Kevin. Question number one is how do you define success? Uh, if you can look back and you're happy with what you are doing and you feel like you've achieved your potential, that's success. Beautiful. You might be the first to actually keep it at one sentence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I follow rules really well, by the way. I learned that early on with teachers. And uh, final question is, what is the best or worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? Um, best advice was, you know, I, I think... This guy named Guillermo Gonzalez in Texas that I worked with his Disney channel. He said, people are people and that's it. So in other words, don't be intimidated by if they're bigger than you, if the title's bigger, if they're a different culture. At the end of the day, people are people. You know, we all want to be treated well. We all want to treat each other nicely and we all want to support each other. So uh, thank you, Guillermo. People are people. That's it. That's great. I think, yeah, in the business world, there's a, sometimes a misconception that being as brutal as possible will lead to the success. And I think you're absolutely right. People want to work with people. They can enjoy being around and they're more, more enthusiastic to work for you and do good work. If that's the case. Yeah, I agree. Well, John, this has been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, best of luck with everything in the future for you and loop TV. Thank you, Kevin, and I appreciate it. And same to you. Best of luck. Thank you so much. The Entrepreneurship at DU podcast was recorded in Marjorie Reed Hall on the University of Denver campus. You can find us on Instagram at DU Entrepreneur, on Twitter at DU underscore Entrepreneur, and on Facebook at Entrepreneurship at DU. Entrepreneurship at DU is part of the Daniels College of Business, which has its own podcast, by the way. Check out Voices of Experience, available wherever you get your podcasts.